You have just made the best decision of your day by choosing to listen to the Holistic Bitches Unfiltered Podcast with me, Leslie Rubinoff, the OG Holistic Bitch. You're guaranteed to laugh, have a what the fuck moment, and truly be inspired to change small things in your life that will have you reaping the rewards of living a truly holistic life, mind, body, and soul. Welcome back to the Holistic Bitches Unfiltered Podcast with me, Leslie Rudolph, the OG Holistic Bitch. And today we have one of the most holistic topics that you could think of. We're talking about sex. And I have the honor, and when I say honor, to have Jess O'Reilly um, on the show, who I got to meet oh, two years ago in Toronto, where we both got to speak together. But Jess is amazing, and she has a PhD in human sexuality with a focus on teacher education. She's the author of five books, included The Ultimate Guide to Seduction and Foreplay. She is the host of Sex with Dr. Jess podcast and appears weekly on international media from Forbes and The Doctors to Cosmopolitan, Entertainment Tonight, and she has hosted Playboy's TV's reality hit Swing and has facilitated couples retreats in over 45 countries from Lebanon to Switzerland. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm so excited um, that you said yes to come and we get to have this epic conversation. And I want to roll right into it, Jess. So I want to know, you know, did you just like wake up one morning and be like, hey, I'm going to talk about sex all day and become famous? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) Well, you know, I was a high school teacher. And so I was teaching at an alternative high school downtown Toronto. And I had all these students coming to me with problems that intersected with sex and gender and overall relationships uh, every single day. And I, you know, I would send them to Planned Parenthood and try and offer supports. But as a teacher, I didn't really have formal, formal training in this. Like I actually, I, I actually had a, an, an undergraduate degree in sexual diversities. I'd been the count, a counselor at the sex ed center at the University of Toronto, and I still didn't feel prepared. So I went back to school to figure out how we could better support teachers to teach this difficult topic. And then, of course, I thought, oh, maybe I'll get a job with the Ministry of Education or the school boards, and those don't exist. So then I moved into the public space and started writing and speaking and working in media. And so my passion is still classroom-based education, and I, I still get to volunteer in the schools. And, the, you know, the rest of the work that I do is very exciting, and, you know, I love it. I've got kind of my dream job, just traveling and speaking and working with different groups who want to take their relationships from good to great. I love that. And and it's, you know, you do so much more than that. Um, Jess, were you always sex confident? No, I wouldn't say so. So I was raised in a Catholic household, but we were a little bit hybrid because my mom's Chinese from Jamaica. My dad's Irish Catholic from Canada. And so my mom already had that experience of bridging cultures, right? Because she was already a Chinese, you know, ethnic Chinese person growing up in Jamaica, and then she came to Canada. So she was really good about kind of bridging the best of both worlds. So they weren't, you know, they didn't shroud sex in shame, but they also weren't, you know, that Western hippie (laughs) celebrate sex. It was somewhere in between. So I was definitely unsure of how to approach sex in my teen years, but I did have, you know, fairly healthy first sexual experiences with open communication. And I think that really, really laid the groundwork 
for a, a fairly high bar in terms of what I expected from myself and my partners moving forward. Yeah, interesting. It's interesting to see the people who, you know, are our lead educators in, in sex education and everything that everyone needs to know because nobody writes the book of sex technically. I mean, like, yes, but like nobody really writes writes it out. And I think like, I remember, I think I was in like grade four when they started talking about, you know, just the anatomy and it was like our first sex education class. At what point do you think, you know, I think it starts at home. Like when should parents start talking about it with their kids? When should that become a comfortable conversation? That's such a great question. So sex education isn't about sex. Sex education is about bodies and confidence and autonomy and consent and pleasure uh, and anatomy and, uh, and relationships. And so it actually begins from the moment they're born where we can have the practice using the language. So maybe when you're changing the diaper, even though the, you know, the, the child's a baby, you can say, okay, I'm just going to clean your vulva or I'm just going to remove your diaper now so that they become accustomed to having you explain what you're doing to their body. So it's their version of consent, right? So obviously, you know, a six month old can't say, yes, do change my diaper, but you can normalize those conversations, normalize the language and around anatomy. And then as they get a little bit older uh, and they can understand what you're saying, it can be as simple as cultivating consent around their bodies. And rather than saying, hey, go give your uncle a hug or go give your grandma a hug, you can say, do you want to give them a hug? Or would you rather give them a high five? So we're laying the groundwork for these skills that become transferable into relationships. And then probably the most obvious teachable moment for many kids is when they see a pregnant person, whether a parent becomes pregnant or, uh, you know, somebody in their family or a neighbor, and they want to understand, well, what's going on in their body. And that's when you can start to explain, oh, well, there's actually a baby growing inside of something called a uterus that's inside the tummy. And then, you know, kids are curiously going to say, well, how does the baby get there? And even from a young age, you can say, well, a baby's made when a little sperm that looks like a tiny tiny, I guess you can say tiny, tiny, tiny fish, um, swims into an egg and that makes a baby. And so a three-year-old's not going to ask more questions than that. They're going to say, okay, a sperm goes into an egg. And then, you you know, maybe a seven-year-old will say, well, how does the sperm get there? And you can explain, well, one person has the sperm in their body, one person has the egg in their body. Uh, and, you know, at between seven and 11 years old, they can start to begin to understand and I want to use those age groups very loosely because it's different for every child uh, and you know your child best, but they can begin to understand that there's something that adults do called sex and it feels good. And you can explain, you know, they, the bodies fit together like a puzzle piece. And of course, I just want to recognize that this isn't the only way babies are made. Some babies are, you know, made in the lab and there's other things that happen. But in many cases, in most cases, the bodies fit together like puzzle pieces. The penis can go inside the vagina and we can normalize these conversations. The younger they are, you know, if you explain this to an eight or nine year old, they the more comfortable you may be speaking to them, right? If you wait until they're 13, it can feel a little bit more awkward. First of all, by the time they're 13, they're gonna figure out what it is on their own, either through Google or their friends. Um, and so we want to start talking about all of these related topics right away. And a really great resource for people is uh, Instagram and website called Sex Positive Families. And they have all the different ways to have conversations uh, and answer questions at developmentally appropriate ages. Yeah, and you, know, you said something. It's because I guarantee, I can almost positively confidently say that 
people are often telling <clears throat> what you said, like, go give so-and-so a hug. I think that's so important that people start asking their children what they would want to do instead of demanding it, making it a suggestion so there's a choice and that the adults who are really just big babies understand that, that not every kid wants to be hugged or kissed or touched by somebody other than their own parents, even their own parents, you know? So I think, I think that was a really interesting point that you made. And I think it's so important that I felt like I had to talk into that. <coughs> Excuse me. And I also think like foundational years are zero to six. So again, when you started saying, you know, using those words when you're changing a diaper, when, when questions come up, I think it's really important because those aren't funny, weird words. It's like, you know, people sometimes yell at me for using the word fuck. And I'm just like, it's a positive word. Like, it's not a negative word. Like, and there becomes these negative connotations with things like penis and vagina. And they become like awkward words for some reason. So I think that's so important that you said that, Jess. So um, thank you for that. Um, I want to ask you what, you know, briefly, like, what are the top three questions you find on repeat that people ask you? Uh, I mean, people want to know if they're normal, right? So they have a fantasy or they have a desire or they have a proclivity or they had an experience and they want to know, is this okay? And so if it's between consenting adults, it's okay, right? So if you like to be peed on, you're okay. If you fantasize about threesomes, you're okay. If you want to have sex in public, if it turns you on to cheat, right? That doesn't mean that you're going to go do it, but in fantasy, if something turns you on, it's okay. So that's the kind of number one thing uh, centered around, am I normal? In long-term relationships, people want to know how to keep things exciting because ultimately, the happier you are in your relationship, the more comfortable you are in your relationship, oftentimes and not always, this can lead to predictability and boredom and comfort that just isn't really hot. So people are trying to figure out, well, how do we keep it hot? We love each other. We like each other. We get along really well. We have a great relationship, a great life, but the sex is boring. And so they're trying to make it more exciting and, you know, from a theoretical perspective, the way we do this is by inserting some sort of risk, right? So when there is no risk, there isn't necessarily the incentive to take action. And so it can be real risk or feigned risk, but people need a little bit of edge, right? To feel excited because if you know what you're going to get, it's just not necessarily as enticing. Uh, and then then the other topic that comes up a lot these days is around ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. So we're seeing more conversations around these relationships. Uh, ethical non-monogamy has always existed. Non-monogamy that ne- isn't necessarily ethical, of course, has always existed. Uh, when we look at you know cheating statistics, we're in the range of 24% of people admit that they've cheated on their partner. Uh, we've got, you know, divorce rates of in the range of 41%, depending on what kind of data you're looking at. And so we see that many relationships don't work out uh, and that not all relationships that say they're monogamous are in fact monogamous. And so there's more conversations around, okay, so monogamy works for some people. It doesn't work for all people. What does ethical non-monogamy look like? And so that's a, uh, you know, a hot topic. Uh, we have data showing that 20% of daters in the United States have tried a consensually non-monogamous relationship. I believe it's 12% of Canadians view open relationships, that's the language they use, but really consensual non- consensually non-monogamous relationships as their ideal format. So lots of conversation in this realm right now. Interesting, because <clears throat> that was going to be one of my other questions is like, what's the idea of one partner for the rest <laughs> of your life? And you know, like 
I know you've been in a really long-term relationship and, and so many other people have it. And for some people it's okay and it works, but like, how do you navigate that space? And like, how do you even answer that question? I mean, you sort of just scratch the surface on it, but like, you know, how, how, how does someone even begin that conversation without hurting their partner? Well, in an ideal world, I'd love to see that conversation occur from the onset in a relationship. Um, if you're already in a relationship and it's something you want to bring up, I think we have more opportunities than ever because we're seeing more popular culture representations of non-monogamous relationships, whether it's on Netflix or in movies. Uh, and so I think it's an opportunity to say, what do you think of that? Or like, how do you feel about that? And keep the conversation slow, right? Some, some people will say, oh, how do I convince my partner to open up? Well, you can't really convince your partner. And if you go into a conversation thinking that it's a one-time thing, uh, that one conversation is going to lead to some huge breakthrough, that's when I think we set ourselves up for inevitable letdown. Whereas if we have ongoing incremental conversations about our relational values, our sexual values, what works for us, what turns us on, what's appealing to us, what makes us feel fulfilled, what do we derive passion from, then I think you can open up those conversations. And so so let's say, for example, you're in a monogamous relationship and you, you don't want it to be monogamous anymore. Uh, some people think that they just need to have a conversation with their partner when in fact it's, it's many conversations that need to be had uh, to gauge whether or not that's a fit for them. And, and I think there's another important piece and that's the differentiation between non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy as a behavior versus consensual non-monogamy as a core part of our identity. Because there are folks who identify as consensually non-monogamous. It's a part of their essence, a part of who they are. And if you discover that about yourself after you've committed to a monogamous relationship, uh, you know, speaking your truth, sharing what really brings you fulfillment in this very short lifetime we have here on earth uh, can feel very essential. And of course, you have every right to speak up. When I say the conversation should be incremental, I don't mean that you should have to compromise who you are or hold back or you know only share a little bit. But what I mean is with the behavioral change, it, it can take time or even with the cultivation of understanding, it can take time. So if uh, to, to go back to like the concrete question, so if I am in this long-term relationship and I realize A, that I am consensually non-monogamous as part of my identity or B, that that's how I want to live my life. And, or, and of course there's crossover between those two. Uh, I think I need to go to my partner and say, you know, I really value this relationship. I love A, B, and C about this relationship. I really care about you. And I need to talk to you about something to really honor my, my own needs or my own identity. And this might be a tough conversation and I, I want to find the right time to start it and continue it uh, and dive a little deeper into why this is a part of my needs or my values. And also really create space to listen to what my partner has to say, right? What are their reactions? Does it, you know, are they immediately off put? Are they scared? Are they insecure? Are they nervous? Are they threatened? And so none of these conversations occurs in a vacuum, right? It occurs within the context of creating, uh, you know, emotional literacy across the board, creating the capacity to talk about how you're feeling. So I think a lot of the times we focus on eradicating or eliminating or avoiding so-called negative emotions, whether those be insecurity or feeling threatened or feeling helpless or feeling jealous or feeling unsure. We try and 
eradicate those feelings instead of working on the skills to manage and work through those feelings. So, you know, when we talk about ethical non-monogamy, when we talk about any component of a relationship, it all ties back to, uh, you know, have we worked on our own emotional literacy? And that's not easy, right? There are lots of factors working against us, whether it be gender roles or even capitalism that's so rooted in always being tough and always being strong and defining success in one specific way or in a very narrow way. Uh, We have to work against so many of those societal forces in order to be emotionally literate. Like, I mean, I mean, I admit for me, sure, I do lots of work on being more emotionally illiterate, but sometimes I don't always know what I'm feeling. Sometimes it just, something feels bad and I can't figure out why, and I can't figure out why it's triggering or why it's hard for me. And I have to go work on that. Uh, And a lot of us don't want to work on it, right? We'd rather just lash out or withdraw or give up or wash our hands clean. And so all of these things tie together. And I know I moved a little away from consensual non-monogamy, but I think regardless of relationship, arrangement, regardless of whether you're monogamous or consensually non-monogamous, we have to work on these pieces around emotional literacy if we want to be fulfilled and kind and loving in our relationships. Yeah, I like that. Emotional illiteracy. It's true because, you know, I can, I can, I can see that situation where like <clears throat> two couples are sitting together and something comes up on, you know, like a show and one person says, how do you feel about it? And one person says, great. And one's like, uh, absolutely not. And right there, you're causing a stir right there. And it comes down to going back to the very basis of a relationship, which is open communications and the permissions to allow one another to feel and to express. Because if you don't have that, you can't build a relationship. And I feel like so many people get into relationships for the wrong reasons. And then they have a really hard time getting out of them because they get really comfortable and you know, people always, you always hear this sex isn't the most important part of a relationship. And I'm like, well, it kind of is like it, it kind of is because it's everything, you know, together. It's all the things we need to have a successful relationship. And, and people get offended when that said, oh, it's not the most important thing. But a lot of the times it is. And people are like, oh, well, men need sex more than women. I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, I don't know what planet you're living on, but if I could have sex every single day, like three times a day, like I'd be a really happy person, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, but you hear that so much, right? That sex isn't the most important thing. What do you think about that? Like, how do you feel about that comment? Well, I think it, var- it varies from person to person and relationship to relationship. Um, you know, on one hand, if your partner is the only person with whom you have sex, it may be what defines that relationship versus another relationship, right? I can have a very intimate, close relationship with a friend that in many ways is much like my, my relationship with my partner, but the difference perhaps is that, I, that we're not having sex. Well, if that's the case, then sex can be quite important because it is the differentiating factor. Uh, in other cases, people can have really loving and intimate relationships and not have sex, right? So I think it really is up to you to define uh, what matters in the relationship, right? And um, the other reason sex becomes so important is because for many people, it's inherently problematic because we carry all the baggage, all the shame, all the expectations around gender, age, body, um, you know, sexual orientation, all of these pieces. And it becomes super important because we don't figure out all the baggage that comes with it. So I I really think it's um, an individual 
perspective. And I think that's actually a really important conversation to have with a potential partner, right? How much does sex matter to you? Because for some people, sex is super important and makes them very happy, as you described. And for other people, like asexual people, for example, you know, sexual attraction isn't something that they necessarily experience. Uh, And that's not to say that some asexuals don't opt into having sex, but there's just a huge range of human experiences and this massive kind of web or continuum that, uh, that really differentiates one relationship or one set of expectations from another, which brings it back to exactly what you said around communication, right? You can't, you can't create a full fulfilling relationship with me unless you talk to me about my needs, my expectations, and, and vice versa. I do the same with a partner. Uh, you know, we can't listen to experts like me. You can't just read books. You actually have to talk to the person or people with whom you're in the relationship. Interesting. Yeah. Makes sense. And again, every single human being is different and everybody's needs are different. I guess that's that's pretty relevant. Um, okay, Jess, now let's have fun. So my first question is, what's up with shameful masturbation? Like, why why do people shame masturbation? I don't know if it, what it goes back to historically, if it's if it's the church, if it's psychotherapy, the punishment of, of women who masturbated. Uh, yeah, it, All I can say is it's a shame that it's a shame because there is no harm to come from it. Of course, there's plenty of positive to potentially come from it. And I I do think it varies according to gender, you know, with women, for example, more shamed for masturbating. You know, I think people with penises are more allowed to, to kind of joke around about it. I think there's also this hierarchy where we suggest that partnered sex is super valuable and it means that like you're a good partner or you're hot or you're a good lover or whatever the case may be. And solo sex is the leftovers when in fact, solo sex is probably the most direct and consistent route to pleasure and orgasm for most of us. So we just need to kind of flip that script on its head. Yeah. And I think like also like the interesting is like kids find their, their parts very early and start very early. And then it's like, you know, it becomes, I don't know, I find that it becomes shameful. And I hear so many people who are just afraid to be like, yes, I masturbate. And I'm like, why are you? That's a great point. That's so Yeah, that's a great point that if your early experiences with masturbation were shrouded in shame and secrecy, and you're kind of doing it in the dark as quiet as possible, trying not to get caught, you create that erotic association or just that behavioral association in terms of feeling badly about it. And so parents can create space for their you know, children to have privacy. When you see your kid touching yourself themselves on the couch, you can say, oh, I know that feels good, but that's something you have to do in private. So you can go do that, you know, in your room and just normalize that. And that could help to kind of change and attenuate or reduce the shame for an entire generation. For sure. For sure. And it's also just like, it's funny because it doesn't get spoken about. Like, again, like, like positive light doesn't come and, it doesn't get really spoken about. Like, it's not like somebody teaches you to do that. I think naturally it just, that's something that evolves. It's just like, it happens for everybody. So that's interesting. Okay. So give me two truths and one myth about the vagina. Okay. Am I supposed to tell you which one's the truth? Um, okay. We can play a game. No, let's go. I'm probably going to mess it up though. Okay. I always screw up my true truths and one lie about myself. How am I going to do about the vagina? Okay. Uh, you know, someone once asked me to do it and I gave three truths and confused everybody. Exactly. <laughs> and it was like, shit, none of them okay, are true. Okay, I'll do my, I'll do my best. Alive. So it's a self-cleaning oven. Okay. Um, uh, let me just, I have to think here. Okay, putting me on the spot. 
it um, stretches with overuse. Like if you put lots of things in there, lots of sex, it can get stretched out. And um, the average length is in the range from the entrance to where the cervix points in, like in the kind of the three inch range. So I think people think it's longer than it actually it is. But then as you become aroused, the cervix kind of tense up and creates more space. And there's also two fornices on one side. And of course, average doesn't mean that much because just like our heights, one person can be 4'11", one person can be 6'5". So there's a great range. All right. So I'm going to go the lies with the stretch. Yes. Yes. So it is a self-cleaning oven. You don't need to be like shoving cleaning (laughs) solutions up there. Um, You can just wash your vulva, which is the part on the outside with water. And if you want to use like a a mild soap, you can too. Uh, There's a, you know, some pH balance washes that are made for your body as well. Again, this is just for washing the outside. There's a, a brand called South, which is a Canadian product that you can check out. Um, so yes, it's a self-cleaning oven. Don't worry about it. You smell fine. You taste fine. Uh, don't let the shame get to you. Uh, no having sex. It's so funny because there's like this myth that, oh, they've had sex with so many people. They're all stretched out. And I'm thinking, well, why would multiple penises versus one penis over and over again make a difference? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, you know, muscular at all. You know, bounces back, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, when you stretch any part in your body, you know, my, my hand, for example, if I separate my thumb and my index finger, I can stretch out that skin and I can bring it back together. Uh, and the third one is around length. Yeah. So the, the vaginal canal um, is not cavernous. It's also not an opening, right? Like we, in anatomy textbooks, you'll see it drawn as like a hole, but it's not a hole. It's more like a deflated balloon where the walls often touch in an unaroused state uh, and then it can expand to accommodate objects of your toy choice if that's what you're into i love that i know the vagina i'm very proud to love <laughs> and know my vagina that's great good good one jess okay now let's talk about squirting because some women don't even know one what it is two that they can do it and a lot of women think that it's not for every woman i think it is i think it's a matter of knowing your body Yeah, so I think that everybody can squirt, but not everybody loves to squirt. Um, So for some people, it's just like an experience. And for some people, it's a highly pleasurable experience. And I kind of compare it to like anything else in the body, right? So some people love getting a foot rub. I love getting my feet rubbed. I can't imagine not. But there are plenty of people who don't actually like having their feet touched. It doesn't feel good to them. Uh, So squirting refers to the expulsion of fluid via the periurethral glands. So the two little glands on either side of the urethra that drain into the urethra. It tends to be more viscous, a thinner fluid than vaginal lubrication. Uh, It often occurs with orgasm, but not always. So you can orgasm without squirting and you can squirt without orgasming. Um, Squirting for many people is a little bit of a misnomer in that it doesn't necessarily like fly across the room, depending on your position and where the pressure is. It can just, if you've ever had sex and gotten up and there's like a wet spot, uh, it may have been, you know, we can call it squirting or we can call it ejaculation. And some studies try and differentiate between the two. Um, I tend to talk about them in, in a similar light. The fluid that it, that is expelled is similar to prostatic fluid without the semen, without the sperm. Uh, and it's the volume changes from person to person. And generally squirting orgasms or squirting occurs from pressure against the urethral sponge, which is also called the G-spot or the G-zone. So 
inside of the vaginal canal. You will, if you curl your fingers up, not, not very far past the entrance, if you just curl your fingers up toward the tummy wall, you might feel a protruding ridge-like area. And that is the G-zone. So it's not inside the vagina, but you feel it through the vagina. The G-zone or the G-spot, however you want to call it, is sort of sandwiched between the vaginal canal and the bladder. But as you become aroused, it engorges with blood. And so you can feel it more discernibly through that vaginal canal. So if you press against that area and kind of curl or pulse or use a toy, uh, that can put pressure on the G-spot. And some people also like to put a hand on the lower abdomen to press against the bladder. So you're sort of squeezing the G-spot from the inside out. Now, if you were to do this right now, it probably wouldn't feel good because you're not aroused. If you wait until you're, you know, 80, 90% of the way to orgasm to start playing with this, the oxytocin has flooded your body, the adrenaline endorphins are up. And so things that might have otherwise been uncomfortable or even painful can begin to feel very, very pleasurable. And so work your way up to orgasm, however you do, whether it's like through fantasy or touching yourself or using a toy or kissing with a partner, and then try the technique of kind of pressing uh, against that G area. Well, maybe you press down on your stomach if you like that pressure on your bladder uh, and then breathe deeply. And as you approach orgasm, you might want to avoid tensing up. So many times when we orgasm, we kind of contract, we, we pull up on our pelvic floor. But if you push out, like you're pushing something out of your vagina, it can help you to relax and you might experience uh, a little bit of squirting. I, I just want to say that like, it's not a sideshow trick. It's not a circus trick. You don't get extra points for doing it. Um, you know, there's no super soaker 2000 up there. So my kind of universal perspective is do what feels good for you. Experiment with new things. Try this technique if you want to, but don't worry about one specific outcome. Don't get hung up on, oh, did I squirt? How much did I squirt? Don't use that as evidence of pleasure because for some people it's highly pleasurable and for some people it's just extra laundry. Hmm. Extra laundry <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but just can you just clarify that it's not urine? Yeah, so, so there's, okay, I have to say this first. There's this small-scale study. I think it had six people or three people. Or it was tiny. And there's an Italian re researcher who is hell-bent on disproving squirting and just really like focused on saying that it's pee but there have and so he's got this tiny study that says that the bladder refills and that uh, it comes out of the bladder but the larger scale research and all the anecdote from people who actually have these bodies will tell you that it's not pee that it is as i said when they test the fluid it's it's similar to prostatic fluid i, I want to say could some pee come out of course some pee could come out pee can come out during sex it can happen um and so you don't there's no sniff test but no that fluid now I, I, another thing i should say is that in porn sometimes things get exaggerated right and so sometimes they will do things for visual effect in porn. So sometimes that like thing that looks like pee in porn could be pee because they're trying to exaggerate it for visual effect. But uh, in real life, we do not believe that the fluid is pee. No, it's prostatic fluid. And in fact, in old medical textbooks, the G-spot or the G-zone used to be labeled the female prostate. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, now that we've cleared <laughs> that air, let's talk about... Um, 
your best blowjob tip? Use your hands and lots of lube because anything you can do with your mouth, you can do just as hot with your hands if you slather them in lube and they feel just like your mouth. So two hands, fingers interlaced, slathered in lube, um, interlace them and then use that as an extension of your mouth so you can like squeeze at the base, you can twist at the top and you don't have to gag on it unless you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you want to. Sometimes that's the prize. Right, absolutely. (laughs) Um, and saliva right if you don't lube it up you could just spit everywhere too just make it that yes the wetter the better and the reason I say lube is that um, if you want to also use your hands your saliva will dry out whereas a good you know lube should last a little bit longer yeah okay fine and now your best clit tip for oral sex for women Oh, so many. Okay, so first of all, know the clitoris. Know that the head of the clitoris is not just that little round bump at the top of the lips. That's only the head of the clitoris. And on the inside, you have erectile tissue, bulbs, legs, you have a shaft, it gets erections. And so rubbing the entire vulva can stimulate the entire internal clitoris. So don't like ring the clitoris like a doorbell. Instead, kind of wrap your hands right around the vulva or use a vibrating flat toy and give them something to grind against. Um, And then while you're going down on the vulva, uh, at first go really slow and gentle, but as they get closer to orgasm, they need something to grind against, and that something is your face. So get your nose in there, put it right in, press it up and down, side to side, round and round. Give them a nose job. <laughs> a nose job. What about the suction? Yes, absolutely. One of my favorite suction moves is you open your mouth wide and you kind of spread it all around the vulva, and then you suck as you roll your tongue around the perimeter of your lips. I actually have a whole course on oral sex. If folks are interested, I have these videos where we've got different techniques with models demonstrated on fruits, and uh, they're called Mind Blowing Oral, and they're at happiercouples.com. Amazing. We will for sure put that in the show notes for sure. So people can go and learn because if you know better, you do better. And so many people are so confused. They're looking at porn to figure shit out. And and listen, porn can be a really good teacher if you can separate, you know, the reality from the not so reality, but Jess does it way better. So you should, we'll, we'll put that in the link so people could do that. Okay. Amazing. Best toy. Let's start with the best toy. So best toy for a man first and then we'll do best toy for for a woman so best toy for a penis i really oh okay there's a brand new toy called the arc wave a r c w a v e arc wave and it's a masturbator but it's not like a typical stroker what it does is you place it um around your penis you put your penis inside of it and it uses these little bursts of tiny changes in air pressure to target what's called the Pacinian receptors on the frenulum of the penis. So um, it's a very different type of orgasm. I feel like it's for people who maybe are already familiar with lots of toys and want to take it to the next level. So that's the arc wave. Uh, If you are more just into like stroking or sucking or having intercourse, um, I would suggest the Wii Vibe pivot. It is a vibrating penis ring that you can wear in multiple positions. It's pleasure for you as well as pleasure for your partner. And so all of these toys, I have discount, like small discounts for all of them. If people are shopping, the code is just Dr. Jess, D-R-J-E-S-S at 
arcwave.com. I think that's the website or wevibe.com. And then for the clit, I would say the womanizer brand of toys is uh, pretty exceptional. It uses the same technology as the ArcWave. It's called Pleasure Air. Uh, and they were the originators of the clitoral kind of, they call them suction toys, but it's not actually suction. Uh, it's tiny changes in air pressure to create that air, those air waves that feels like a cross between sucking and licking and kissing and uh, it's and vibing and it's just magic. So the Womanizer brand of toys, uh, I like the Liberty because it's got a little case and it kind of almost fits in your pocket and it's easy to travel with. Uh, and same thing, if you want to discount at womanizer.com, you can just use code Dr. Jess. Okay. Oh, for sure. Get all that <clears throat> into the show notes. So it's an easy clip, clip, clip. I should mention too, clip. since you're in Canada, I have a new show in Canada um, brought to you by TSC, um, today's shopping choice. I think people know it as the shopping channel. Um, and it's on city TV Fridays at midnight where I talk about sex toys and also talk a little bit about sex ed. So it's really cool that Canada is doing this. So if people have questions, they can send their questions in as well at tsc.ca slash it's called intimately you with Dr. Jess. <laughs> oh, I love that. Do you remember Dr. Sue? Yes, Johansson? I do. <laughs> the Sunday night sex <laughs> show. No, it's funny. I think, oh, I think someone remember. in my family knew her personally, but not from in the field. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I remember listening to her on Sunday nights. Okay. Jess. And what about, um, Let's do a toy for same-sex couples and then um, uh, female-male couples, best toy. So for same-sex couples, if there's a penis involved, I'm going to go back to the WeVibe pivot. For same-sex couples, if you've got vulvas involved, so just my favorite toy overall, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, I just love this toy, is called the Touch X by WeVibe. So it used to just be called the Touch, but they have a new model out called the Touch X. And it is about the length of, say, a computer mouse, but skinnier. It sort of looks like a tongue, and you hold it in the palm of your hand, and you can press it against your vulva. You can use the rounded tip against your clit. You can also use it along the perineum um, for people, like I'm, I'm saying that this is for same-sex couples with vulvas, but if you have balls, you could also use it with some lube over your balls. It's the most versatile toy. Uh, it's called the WeVibe Touch X. If you want more power, then I'd go with the wand. Um, and then, yeah, did I answer all, all the, the different types? I mean, if you're just going to pick one toy, I love the Touch X and I also at WeVibe.com. Love it. I think it's the wee vibe that you can have, like where you control it from your phone. You know your stuff. Yeah. So all the wee vibe toys. um, Yeah. Yeah. The wee vibe toys pair with the we connect app. And so if I'm over in Singapore uh, and my partner is in Montreal, they, we can give each other permission to control one another's toys. That's fun. Lots of fun. (laughs) Um, And again, people have to experience, like there's also this negative connotation around sex toys. And I mean, like, it's like a bill, probably like over a billion dollar industry. It's one of the most rapidly growing, evolving industries is the sex toy industry. Like whoever thought of the fleshlight, like, come on, that guy's laughing, you know, bringing sex toys to people. So I think there's also people have to get more comfortable. I think, I think there's even people, you know, my age in their thirties and their forties who still aren't sexually confident. And I think you need to teach that course, Jess is like, like why people are so 
not confident about being sexual, you know, why it's still looked at as something that's negative. It's one of the best pleasures we can either one, give ourselves or two, engage with, with another person, as long as it's consensual and safe. Right. I I think there's just so much pressure, right. That we have to be so many different things and we have to kind of be like porn stars. And in the absence of other depictions of pleasure, you know, people with penises feel like they always need to be hard. They need to last forever. They need to be really big. They need to be powerful and aggressive and dominant. And people with vulvas and clitorises feel like we need to be kind of hypersexual and we need to respond a certain way and we need to orgasm really quickly and we need to bounce around. And uh, there's just, there's so much pressure. And uh, what we know, the data shows that in the absence of comprehensive sex education that includes depictions of pleasure, people turn to porn. And porn is a lot of things. And it's not that it can't be inspirational and it's not that you can't use it to start educational conversations, but it's not intended to be educational. It's it's a visual medium, right? When you talk about oral sex, why are they always flicking their tongue at a gazillion miles a minute and never getting in their, get their face in there? It's because the camera can't, if they just stuck their face in there in a way that felt good, the camera can't show it, but it is a primarily visual medium. Uh, and that leaves, that leaves a lot out, right? The relational piece, the emotional piece, the psychological piece, all the negotiations, the consent, the lube, the, the toys, all of that stuff. And so we just, what we, what we don't need to eradicate porn, we need to improve education so that people have more options for learning. Yeah, 100%. Okay, Jess, three things you wish you knew before you know, your sexual journey began and three things that you think it's important for other people to know. Like personally around sex? Yeah, well, however you want to form it, for, formulate your answer. Yeah, what do I wish I knew? Um, this is such a good question. Um, I think I've had a very lucky sexual journey. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, like, I... I Oh, sorry. I'm like struggling with this because I I was kind of lucky where I kind of used sex toys from the beginning and I had partners who prioritized my pleasure and communicated openly from the beginning. Um, I think, and, and I felt very open around sexual fluidity from the beginning, like being, being whoever I wanted to be. I don't think I felt held back. Um, I think just as a woman, there was always a lot of pressure to uh, on the way we look. Um, and so I think maybe that affected me when I was young, but I was kind of lucky too, because I was into sports. So I saw my body as functional. So I didn't get too like obsessed with the way I looked. Um, if I could think about my relationship now, uh, what we could do differently um, I think, okay, here's what I, I want. I, I, right now I would just like to take more time. Like, I feel like I don't take enough time for sex. I kind of just squeeze it in instead of taking my time with it. And I think that comes down to partly how I am. Like I'm a little bit of a frenzied, frazzled person. And so I wish I would just slow down a little bit more. And I think that we can, many of us can really gain from that. Um, something else I think that a lot of people don't realize is that 
sex doesn't necessarily just come on its own. Like if you're not in the mood for sex, sometimes you have to get yourself in the mood for sex. And like I say this all the time, that sometimes you have to get aroused first and then you experience desire as opposed to feeling desire and then going for arousal. And I have to remind myself of that as well, especially during times when I'm really busy or really stressed out. So those are kind of two important things to me. Okay. And two things people need to know. Oh, okay. Um, that you don't have to do everything. You don't have to be everything. You, they're like, even though you have all these options, whether it's like oral or consensual non-monogamy or toys or anal or group sex or public sex, uh, you don't have to do them all. So I think sometimes when we talk about all these different approaches to sex, there's the opposite of shame, which is the pressure to, to do it all. And I would say, just don't judge yourself and don't avoid things because you're judging them, but don't feel you have to do it all. Number one. Uh, and number two, we just need to talk more openly about sex. We need to admit that we don't do everything, that we don't know everything. Like, I mean, I'm in this field and I've been studying it for years and I study it all day, every day. And I still feel like I know so little, there's always so much to learn. And I think, um, we just need to kind of and open our minds to that. And I, I need to always remind myself of that too, that no matter what I do, no matter whose workshop I sit in on or lecture, I always have something to learn. Yeah. And you can get better at sex the more comfortable you get with it and the more you learn about it and the more open you are and the more confident you are. And I think confidence has a lot to do with people who don't have good sex because it starts with them. It's their self-esteem. It's their lack of confidence. It's their lack of understanding their self-worth and their self-love and their self-respect. And I think all of those come from pain points that all humans have because we all have pain and trauma and then it gets carried over. So I think we have to heal as human beings to be able to have really great sex and to really use sex as it's intended to be, which is pleasure. Um, well, love too, and making a child, but aside from that, it, it's pleasure. So I think people have to get a lot more comfortable with things. And just we're thankful that there are people like you in this world who do such a good job at it. And, you know, you really dedicate it to this and teaching and educating people about all kinds of things. And like Jess said, she has courses and we're going to put the, the links, her links in the show links with her discount codes and everything. Thank you for tuning into the Holistic Bitches Unfiltered podcast. I hope you got what you came for and you're eager to return for future episodes. My one ask is that you hit the subscribe button and if you could be so kind to leave a raving review. Sending you so much love, light, healing, and inspiration to be a better you. Peace out, friends.